The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Philippians 1, verse 3, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you. Always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart. And you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word, open our eyes, open our hearts to see and behold wonderful realities of what it means to be a participant and partner of grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the great partnerships in sports happened in Chicago. In the early 1990s, Michael Jordan had quickly become the largest, really, sports star in the country, a professional basketball player. But in spite of all his popularity and his personal success, he was unable to win a championship for many years. After a number of just heartbreaking losses, the, the organization, the Chicago Bulls, decided they needed to sort of reorganize the team and find him new teammates to play with. And so they made a number of decisions that surrounded him with the right teammates. When they did that, the Bulls won three championships in a row and six out of the next eight. Michael Jordan, as great as he was, couldn't win alone, but with the right partnership, he couldn't be beat. So this afternoon, I want to focus our thought on one phrase, primarily in verse 5. It's partnership in the gospel. Look again at verse 5. He says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. What's it mean to be a partner in the gospel? The Apostle Paul knew partnerships would multiply the impact of the gospel, that they could do more together than he could do alone. You know, if a single Christian motivated by love for God, was to lead 10,000 people a day to faith in Jesus Christ. It would take him 2,000 years to reach the entire planet. So one person, 10,000 people a day, it would take 2,000 years. But if a single Christian led one person to faith in six months, the two of them each led one person to faith in the next six months, the four then led one person each to faith in the next six months, The entire globe could have reached 7 billion people in less than 20 years. You see, we can do more together than you can do alone. If you can believe this, we can do more together than even Uncle Don can do alone. Like multiple churches can do together what a single church cannot do by itself. And that's what gospel partnerships are all about. Gospel partnerships maximize the spread of the gospel. Through gospel partnerships, a church can reach Kahul, Moldova, and Concord, North Carolina at the very same time. We can make disciples in the Quay and in the Balkans simultaneously. Now as a church, we've been saying this now for the last 18 months, that it's, it's, we're in a season of building, partnering, and going. That it's time for us to build, to partner, and go. And we, we've been trying to sort of remind ourselves of this and unpack what this means so last week we, we looked at what does it mean to build theologically, like that we're, we're not a building as a church, we're a people, so what does it mean to have a building, and we looked at that. So today I want to look at what it means to partner in the gospel. This is vital to us because we believe partnerships are necessary for us to make the impact 
that God wants us to have. It's through partnerships we're able to see the Lord work in lives around the globe. We get to participate in the expansion of the kingdom of Jesus Christ by making and maintaining gospel partnerships. So here's my plan. I want us to understand what Paul means here in this book when he says you are partners in the gospel. So we're going to sort of look at a number of passages in Philippians to answer this question. What does he mean by a gospel partner? What makes a gospel partner? What does a gospel partnership include? So we use this terminology, right? We partner with others. Well, what is that biblically? That's our goal this afternoon. Four main ingredients to a gospel partnership. Here's the first one. Common experience. A common experience. Okay, a gospel partnership begins with the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God in his grace is reconciling sinners to himself through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. You can't have a gospel partnership without both partners having received and embraced the gospel. And so this is where the Apostle Paul begins as he's fleshing this out. Uh, His confidence that these Christians here in this church in a little city called Philippi, that this church, these people, have, these men and women have received the gospel. Look what he says in verse 6. He says, I'm sure of this. I'm certain of this. I have no doubt about this. Well, what are you sure of? That he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on, indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart and you are all partners with me in grace. So the good work that he's certain of is the work of salvation, that they had heard the gospel preached by Paul, shared by others, they'd repented of their sin, and they had placed their faith in Jesus Christ alone, and he had rescued them from their sin and death. Like, Paul was sure that they were born again, that they they were recipients of the Spirit of God. They They would receive all that was theirs in Christ Jesus forever and ever, that God would one day bring them home to himself, free of sin and judgment. This is what he was sure of. And so he says, because of this, because I'm sure that this has happened, that you have received the gospel, he says, because of this, I have confidence that you are, verse 7, he says, partners in grace. So a partnership in the gospel means we're partners in grace. Now, sometimes we hear the phrase partners in crime, right? Sometimes we use it about people who actually commit crime. Sometimes we do it about two little boys Right, that are terrorizing some home, right? They're partners in crime. But what do partners in crime do? More crime, right? That's why we call it that. Like, you didn't just do one thing, you did multiple things, you're partners in crime. What do you think a partner in grace does? More grace, right? Partners in grace show grace and talk about grace and spread grace everywhere they go. Now, only those who've experienced Grace can be part of spreading the message of grace around the globe. Grace doesn't need a paid endorser. It's not a commodity that is bought or sold. Grace doesn't need an advertising agency or a promotional campaign. Here's what grace needs. It needs to be experienced. And once someone experiences grace, it's hard to shut up about it. Martin Luther was a Catholic monk who, in spite of his best effort, Realized he could never attain the perfection necessary to be accepted into heaven. And this failure to live perfectly weighed on him. And he was crushed by despair until the day when God opened Luther's eyes to the beauty of grace. And from that point forward, the story of Luther's ideas couldn't stop talking about God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And he was the human spark God used to ignite 
the blaze of Reformation that spread like wildfire across Europe in the 16th and century, 17th century. One man who became convinced of God's grace. John Newton was a slave ship captain who, in spite of his religious upbringing, had rejected everything he heard about God. He, he himself says that he went far beyond what he could ever imagine into sin. While on one of his trips to Africa to steal slaves, he himself was taken captive and he was enslaved to this vicious, evil man. He escaped barely alive, and when he did, he cried out to God, and God rescued him from his sin. And it was the weight of his own failure and the sweetness of God's grace that caused him to write those words, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Right? He experienced grace and couldn't shut up about it. Now, now it's not just people like Martin Luther and, and John Newton. I'm looking over Rick Habaker. Rick experienced God's grace, and you've heard about it, I bet. Right? I see a lot of head shaking. Last week, I was walking out of church. Rick handed me his story. And he said, have I given you this? And I said, yes, Rick. Maybe a dozen times. But you know what? Once you experience grace, you can't shut up about it. Right? And so if you're going to be a partner in the gospel, a partner in grace, it begins by making sure you have this common experience of actually receiving God's grace. So part of this work, good work that God does in his people is he gives us opportunities and courage to tell others about grace, the grace of Jesus Christ, between our coming to him in faith and our going to him upon death. So let me ask first, has God begun that good work in you? Right, Because it starts with that. You're not going to be a partner in the gospel until you first received grace, until that good work has begun. Have you felt the weight of your sin and the utter impossibility of making it right on your own? Have you seen the beauty of Jesus Christ and his willingness to forgive you? The second ingredient in a gospel partnership is a shared commitment. So it's not just a common experience, it's then a shared commitment. And so here's what the Apostle Paul demonstrates both in this book really and throughout the New Testament. He has this determined passion to spread the gospel as far as he possibly can. Right? He, he looked at himself, he was a messenger, he had a message from Jesus Christ that had to be told, and so his life had this one defining purpose, to see the gospel spread around the globe. He writes this letter to the Philippians from jail. And here's the crime he committed, he couldn't stop talking about Jesus. Right? This is why he's in jail, because he refused to be quiet about Jesus. He was told, go to jail or be quiet, and he said, I'll, I'll go to jail. Now, if that was me, I'd be angry and bitter about the mistreatment I received at the hands of these corrupt officials. Instead, this is what Apostle Paul says, like, wow, look at this new ministry opportunity. I never could have got in here if they hadn't arrested me. Look at verse 12. Chapter 1, he says this. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, okay, what's happened to him, he's thrown into prison unjustly. He's a Roman citizen, Shouldn't be thrown into prison. He's thrown into prison unjustly just because he's telling people about grace in Jesus Christ. So he says that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. Okay, that, that, that perspective, is that it's, I wish that were more natural to me and not so foreign. This thing that it seems so bad, hey, it actually advances the gospel. So that has become known throughout the whole imperial guard to everyone else. That in, my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. How do you think they knew that? Because he wouldn't stop talking about it. Then he says, most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord. The people who haven't been thrown in prison, he's like, guess what? They're talking about it more because they see what happened to me. 
He says they dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. Everything Paul experienced was seen through the lens of gospel advancement. Here it's in his imprisonment. At the end of the chapter, he says it's all of his life and death. In fact, he says he's at this point in his life where he's evaluating his life. Prison probably does this to you, right? You're evaluating his life and he's debating and sort of internally, would it be better to stay here? Or would it be better if God just took me home? And he says, the more I think about it, the more I just love to be with Jesus and not here anymore. But, he says, I've still got stuff to do. I've still got work to finish. People still need to hear the good news. So he, have, he sees everything through this commitment he has to take the gospel to other people. I remember a few years ago, I was talking with a pastor, and he, had, he told me, we were just talking, and he mentioned a, a student of his, a former student of his, who had just finished boot camp. And I, I, he brought this up because I, I had met the student year, a few years earlier, and during boot camp, the student lost something like 35 pounds. Now, if you're picturing someone who was heavy when they went to boot camp, you've got it wrong. It was a person who wasn't heavy and yet lost all this weight, like doing all these drills and all this exercise during a summer in boot camp in Georgia. How did this happen? Well, his drill sergeants had this single-minded determination. Everything we do is to prepare these soldiers for battle. Everything they did, everything they experienced, it was viewed through this sort of one lens. We've got to prepare them for the fight. And this is what the Apostle Paul not only has himself, but this is what he's encouraging and what he's seen in this church is that they too have a, have a sort of single-minded determination. So he, at the end of this chapter, chapter 1, he encourages them to see everything in a way that displays the gospel and then to sort of stand together to strive to fight this fight of faith. No matter what they face, no matter what they encounter, he encourages them, press forward with this shared commitment to talk about the gospel. So he verse, says, verse 27, just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel. He says, then whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith, for the belief, people believing the gospel. Not being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, because that's a sign of their destruction, but your salvation. This is from God. In other words, like, yeah, there's going to be some opposition. God, this, God's in charge of that. Now verse 29. It's been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not just to believe in him, but to suffer for him. Since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had, and now here I have. The gospel normally advances when Christians commit themselves to spreading it, even when it's not convenient. Rarely does gospel move forward without sacrifice on the part of Christians. Paul was beaten and imprisoned, and he says these believers, you're facing some of those very same threats. Their commitment, he says, here's, but here's the beauty. When you face threats like this and you still talk about Jesus, what it proves to those watching is that what you're testifying about is real and that it's worth it. That you're saying, I know this is hard. I know if I weren't doing this, it would be easier. But I'm still going to talk about it because it's worth it. These Christians were more concerned about the advance of the gospel than their own personal comfort. John Patton was about to leave his successful mission work in Glasgow, Scotland, to take the gospel to the cannibals on the New Hebrides Islands. When he did, this is just one of my favorite stories. I probably, I know I've told it before. I'm going to keep telling it until I die. It's just one of my favorite stories. So he, he went to his church, and one of the older, respected men in the church 
publicly warned him about going to these islands to take the gospel there. And this is what the elder man said. He said, the cannibals, you'll be eaten by the cannibals. That's not bad advice. But this is it. This is my favorite. This is how John Patton responded. He said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now. And your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. So John Patton went to New Hebrides Islands. 12,000 cannibals trusted Jesus. They sent out more than 250 as preachers. And 42 years after he went there, he was asked what led him to go there. And he said a, a lot of it was the death of two missionaries, John Williams and James Harris, who had gone to those islands 20 years before Patton. And within minutes of stepping on shore, they were killed and eaten. And so here's what Patton said. Nearly half a century later, he said, Thus were the New Hebrides baptized with the blood of martyrs, and Christ thereby told the whole Christian world that he claimed these islands as his own. See, gospel partnerships only work when both partners have a commitment to advance the gospel in the face of great personal cost. See, it's not, it's not a gospel partnership when one goes to an island of cannibals and the other one won't cross the street. It's really not a gospel partnership when one, in the words of Martin Luther, lets goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also, and the other's stockpiles, cars and boats and ATVs in their garage. When I was a kid, I remember reading the novel Tom Sawyer by Mark Twain. And one of the most memorable episodes is when Tom is given the job of painting the fence behind his house. And so in true Tom Sawyer fashion, he he comes up with a, a plot to get out of the work. And so what he does is he convinces his friends that painting a fence is just the most exciting thing. And they're missing out by not doing it. And by the end of the story, not only do they paint him, paint the fence for him, they pay him to paint the fence. And so the sort of the episode ends there with them painting the fence and Tom Sawyer sitting in the shade eating an apple that one of them paid him to paint the fence. But sometimes I wonder if we as American Christians are like Tom Sawyer. We received a job, take the gospel to the nations, and we've decided this is going to be difficult and stressful, and so in our ingenuity we've passed it on to others. Like we slap them on the back, we tell them what a good job they're doing, and then we send them on their way while we sit in the shade eating an apple. It's not a partnership if we don't do any of the work. It's not a partnership if we don't shoulder any of the burden. It's not a partnership if we never sweat. So in order for us to truly partner in the gospel, there's got to be this shared commitment to see the gospel advance in spite of personal discomfort and through personal sacrifice. Here's the third ingredient. A genuine relationship. Genuine relationship. So Philippi, though not real large, it was an important trade city in the Roman Empire. The Apostle Paul, he, he stopped there on one of his missionary journeys. And while he was there, God led him to a riverside to pray. And it just so happened that there was a group of ladies there praying as well. The Apostle Paul went over, introduced himself, and began to share the gospel. And many of them came to faith in that moment. And this is sort of the birth of this church that he's writing two years later. 
This is all recorded in Acts chapter 16. Well, on that same trip, Paul and his companion, traveling companion Silas, they, they cast a demon out of a young girl, young slave girl, and because of this they were thrown in prison. As they were in the prison, they began to sing hymns. God sent an earthquake. The chains fell off. The prison doors opened. And instead of running off, they actually stayed to lead the, the jailer to faith in Jesus. And so Paul's relationship with this church, it went all the way back to the very beginning of its existence. And so because of this, like, you, you can just hear the deep affection that Paul has for this church. I mean, think about what we've been able to do at Redeemer. We've had a hand in seeing some churches planted. And those churches matter to us, don't they? And our, our involvement wasn't as deep as the Apostle Paul's. We weren't necessarily the ones there in that community planning it. So just imagine his affection for them. He says this in verse 8 of chapter 1. For God is my witness. How deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Like, that's powerful language. The love of Jesus is what I have for you. That's deep, genuine. Just turn to chapter 4, look at verse 1. He says, So then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown. Like, Paul had a real, deep, loving relationship with his church. In fact, we find out in chapter 3 that... They sent one of their members, Epaphroditus, possibly one of their leaders, to minister to Paul because they heard he was in need and he he just needed help. And so they sent him there. Paul, on his part, was about to send Timothy, who he considered his own son in the faith, to check on them and care for them. And so this partnership in the gospel he's talking about, it comes from an overflow of a deep relationship. Can you really have a partnership without a relationship? So what does this mean for us? It means we need to know those we partner with. If we're going to use this language as a church, it requires an investment from all of us. Like if we really mean that we partner with people, it means we need to know them, we need to care for them, we need to be growing in our love and affection for them. There are ways we try to do this as a church. It's one of the reasons why you just heard Don a minute ago pray by name for partners. We do that every Sunday. It's why we post prayer updates on Slack, why we show videos when we can from our different partners and give different updates. But here's what we've got to sort of all decide together, that our partners will not be a name on a list in the church office. But we will see them as they are, brothers and sisters giving their lives to advance the gospel in other communities and other countries. So here's... Here's how the Apostle Paul looks at these partners. I think this is how we need to. Okay, gospel partners, they're an extension of our ministry. They are an extension. Let's go further. They're an extension of us. So look at this. I want you to see this. Look at chapter 1, verse 30. He says, you are engaged in the same struggle that that he is. Now, they're not close to each other at this moment geographically. They're separated by hundreds of miles at this point geographically. And yet here's what Paul says. He says, we are literally engaged together in the same struggle. You see how tightly tied Paul was to them? That he understood that they were united together in Christ and they shared this sort of single-minded determination 
to advance the gospel. It was a relationship forged through suffering and joy, and the strength of this relationship allowed them both to to stand firm even when they were apart. Before Carrie's grandparents passed away, they would send me a birthday card each year, and her grandpa would always write a poem. That's a generous word, a poem. It's rhymed, sort of. But every year he'd write me some version of a poem in this card, and they were fairly memorable. Um, But the most memorable part was after all the thing, he always wrote this on the bottom, Josh, I pray for you every day. I pray for you every day. And I believe he did. So the question is why? Why did he pray for me? Was it because I was a pastor? Was it because of the college I graduated from? Was it because of the football team I cheered for? He was a Packers fan. Certainly wasn't that. They don't pray. Sorry, that was unfair. (laughs) So why did he pray for me? (laughs) He prayed for me because we had a relationship, right? Like all of it was based upon, I mean, I married his granddaughter. Like we had a relationship. I was was family. And this is, this is, this is what's got to happen if we're going to really care for our partners and pray for them is we've got to have relationships because it's a lot easier to pray for a friend than it is for a name. And so uh, the type of gospel partnerships that we want, I think we have them, but we want more of them and we want them to be deeper and stronger and richer are the ones that flow out of real relationships. And so I've got a challenge for you. Like take the initiative to get to know those we partner with. Like maybe you're, if you're being honest, you're like, right now, they're primarily names to me. Okay. And depending on how long, if you've been here for a long time, well, we should talk. But if you've been here for a little time, okay, it's, it takes a little while. But are you intentionally changing that? We have all of their email addresses. And we would gladly give you them so you could email them. Maybe instead of this summer going to Disney World... You say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to book a flight to Dublin or to, I'm going to go on that missions trip to Moldova or I'm going to go down for a weekend to Rock Hill or to Concord or to Monticello. Like, it's easy for us to simply ignore our lack of engagement with our partners and sort of Tom Sawyer it to the rest of the church, right? Well, I mean, we're doing a great job partnering as a church. Well, not unless all of our members are actually partnering. I think that's an area we can grow, is all of our members saying, I am a partner with them. Is it worth it? Well, what did Paul say in chapter 4, verse 1? He says, you are my joy. Do you remember how he opened the letter? Look back at chapter 1, verse 3. I thank God every time I think of you. I pray for you with joy. So their relationship and their partnership in the gospel, he says, you, this is a source of joy for me. So let me just say, if you're not really engaged with gospel partners, then you are missing one of God's avenues for joy in your life. Okay. Do you hear that? Like God has set up certain avenues of joy in your life and one of them is really partner with others in the gospel work. And if you don't do that or you do that very loosely, 
then you're missing out on some way God has designed for you to have joy. So if you want more joy, engage with others in the advance of the gospel. Okay, so our gospel partnerships begin with common experience, grace, a shared commitment to spread this, a genuine relationship, and then here's the last one, a generous disposition. A generous disposition. Genuine love always produces a disposition of generosity. Now, I chose the word disposition intentionally because it's more than an act. It's an act and an attitude. I sort of want you to think of this, that a gospel partnership means you're leaning in gener- towards generosity all the time. Like you're just leaning that way. A generous disposition is living like a bloodhound. You're always on the scent for ways to demonstrate generosity to others. See, if you truly love someone, you can't help but be generous. So just imagine you had a friend who'd been dating someone for a while, and your friend told you she had never received a gift from her boyfriend. Like, she'd celebrate a birthday, no gift. Christmas, no gift. Valentine's Day, no gift. She had never once received a gift. What advice would you give her? Like, I don't think he loves you. Right? Like, how, how would he go all of this time if he really loved her and not demonstrate generosity? Right? So genuine love for Jesus always produces generosity. And because it's for Jesus, that generosity is sort of aimed out at sharing the news about him and partnering with others to share the news about him. And this is what we see in the lives of this church, the life of this church here in Philippi. So go to chapter 4. And once you see how the Apostle Paul commends their love for him, their love for Jesus, their faith in Jesus. And he says all of this is evident because of the, their generous disposition. So look at verse 14. You did well by partnering with me in my hardship. Let's stop for a second so we make sure we're seeing this. He begins by saying you're a partner in the gospel, you're a partner in grace. Now he says you did well partnering with me. So now he's going to flesh out a little more of how they practically partnered with him, right? Verse 15. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my needs several times. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. But I have received everything in full, and I have an abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So their faith in God's ability to meet their needs, plus their love for Christ and Paul, it added up to amazing generosity. He said, you did this over and over. You kept sending time after time what I needed to help the gospel advance. Now, I'm thankful that I can stand up here this afternoon and testify to the generosity of our church. That I could tell, here's story after story, time after time, when I've seen our generosity to our partners in the gospel. I just got an email actually just today from Jeff in Ireland talking about our partnership and their gratitude for our generosity and partnering together. This happens regularly, right? This, this comes from growing faith and genuine love. But, but I want you to see the connection Paul makes in verse 17. He says, listen, not that I seek the gift. It wasn't really about what I received, he said. I seek the profit that increases to your account. 
Let's, let's understand what he's saying. He's saying your money is not necessary for God to complete his work. Like God's not bound by our generosity or lack thereof. Like God will do what God will do. He will accomplish his purpose. He doesn't need our money. It's not our money. It's his. But he says, here's, here's what happens. He's like, I, when you give Fruit abounds on your account. So if you sow seeds of generosity, this is what he's telling them in verse 17, if you sow these seeds of generosity, you will reap a harvest of fruit. And so he ties these two things together, generosity and fruit. Generosity produces fruit. So here's a question. Is your life producing fruit? So greater generosity leads to greater fruit both in individual lives and in the corporate life of a church. So I don't think it's a coincidence that as our generosity as a church has gone up dramatically, the very same time we're having the privilege of sending out more and more families to plant churches and serve. You think that's an accident? Do you think it's a chance? Or do you think as we sow seeds of generosity, God is allowing us to witness increased fruit from that? Do you remember how... We saw earlier the Apostle Paul viewed everything through the lens of the advance of the gospel. That included financial gifts, financial support, finances as a whole. So, do we do that? I mean, if I look over the course of my life and you said, hey, is the number one financial priority for you been to advance the gospel? I'd have to say no. That so often it's things like, well, we got, we got to save money for college or there's that car repair bill or like we had to pay off this debt or I just set some money aside for that other thing. All good things, all necessary things. And somehow the most important thing in the universe, the spread of the message of grace in Jesus gets my financial leftovers. Now listen, I, I want to be caref- very careful here. Because I want to actually commend you as a church, us as a church for generosity. And I don't want in any way contribute to guilt in this area because here's what we have, we know this, the Bible teaches it and we've seen it, guilt doesn't produce generosity. Never does. And Paul doesn't say that. He actually encourages, you know what produces generosity? More generosity. And seeing the fruit and seeing the joy that comes from it. But but I I want you to see that what he's saying here is that God gives us resources so that we can invest those resources in a way that brings joy to other people and us. Sometimes there's this advice given, which in one sense is terribly wrong, but on the other hand is 100% true. It's a spend money on what will make you happy. And why I say that's terribly wrong is because the, often when that advice is giving what will make you really happy, no, people don't understand. Like they're totally wrong on what will make them happy. I think Paul is saying, spend money on what will really make you happy and here's what it will be and here's how he knows it because this is how God designed it. Spend money on pouring into people for the sake of the gospel and you'll find great joy in it. Don't spend money on buying another trinket that will break. But invest your money in a way that is bound to produce joy. Invest it in the spread of God's kingdom. Amy Carmichael served as a missionary in India for 55 years and she showed great courage in standing 
up to human trafficking and forced prostitution. But near the end of her life, she was reflecting on her time as a missionary, and she wrote this. She said, you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. In other words, anyone can write a check. You don't have to love to do that. It might just be your accountant says write a check. But if you love, you can't help but give. And certainly that doesn't mean just money. That's our time, that's our energy, that's our prayer, that's our attention, that's our affection. We cannot love without giving. Love for Christ, love for our gospel partners, love for the nations. This is what inspires us to give. The more we love, the more we live with a generous disposition, always looking for ways to give. So in colonial America, one of the great dangers to every home was fire, right? And so they needed fire, open flames to, to, to cook their food, to heat their homes, but that same fire that provided so much also could turn deadly in, in just a moment. And because of the way homes were built and they were near each other, it could often spread to others. Many lives lost, homes destroyed due to fire in that time. Benjamin Franklin one of the things he liked to do was notice a problem and try to solve it. And so he was thinking about this issue of fires. He realized that they could do a much better job if everyone worked together. And so on December 7th, 1736, a group of 30 men, they took Franklin's advice and they formed the Union Fire Company in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. They started to meet monthly to discuss fires, strategies for battling out-of-control flames. They purchased and developed better equipment to handle the fire. They learned techniques. They trained to be better prepared. This caught on, and more men wanted to join the fire company. So what they did is they started new fire companies in other parts of the city. The company spread. Their equipment and technique improved. And it didn't take long before Philadelphia, which had been one of the most dangerous cities to live in, soon became one of the safest cities in the whole world. All of it began when one man realized you can do a lot more together than you can do on your own. Well, what's the point of gospel partnerships? Isn't it to save people from the fire? To rescue people from death and destruction? Well, we can rescue more people together than we can do on our own. Like, we can rescue more people by working with other churches than we can do on our own. But gospel partnerships only work if these things are true. We have to have all experienced God's grace. We have to be willing to commit ourselves to this. We have to live with generosity and joy and deep, loving relationships. You know, we have, this, we have this wonderful privilege. God has been so kind to us as a church that he has given us amazing gospel partners. It just seems like any time God brings a new partnership to our church, if you're like me, you're just amazed. Like, why, God, are you giving us such wonderful people to partner with? Like, just time after time after time whether this is in the U.S., whether it's different places around the globe. We have been so blessed by God to have these partners. So our job is to pray for them, to care for them, to invest in them. Let's commit to doing that. Will you join me in prayer? Father, thank you that you have given us partners in the gospel, that we can say, like the Apostle Paul, that we have partners in grace, that we're working together to advance the gospel in the spite of difficulty and challenges and sometimes discouragement and opposition. I pray that you help us to invest in these partnerships, that we'll do it personally, that it won't just be something we do corporately, but that the corporate 
investment, us as a church, will actually be an overflow of each one of us investing in those we partner with, to getting to know and praying for and going and visiting and, and seeing how we can help and serve those who are serving other places. Father, may our joy increase as we invest our time and our attention, our affection, and our resources in partnering together for the sake of the gospel. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.